I think normalizing that it isn't all roses and lavender scented oils is really important because I certainly went into it. Um, whilst I was aware of postnatal depression, I had absolutely no idea that those mental health issues could present during pregnancy. And I, I think normalizing that, that this happens and it's okay to feel like this. Um, it's okay that you're not enjoying it is so important. I was suffering with rage and that is something that I'd never experienced before and was re really embarrassed about it. And unfortunately for my husband, he obviously sort of took the brunt of that rage and that sort of increased anxiety and emotions associated with it. It kind of felt like an out-of-body experience the first few times it happened. It would take me by surprise, you know, it'd be at the drop of a hat, something would happen. And that something could be really trivial, but it would be enough to trigger this rage. It's not something that I'd ever experienced. So yes, it, it was quite frightening, but it was really embarrassing. I certainly didn't want to tell anyone else about it. Obviously, my husband witnessed it, but telling, you know, a friend or family or a healthcare professional was absolutely not something that I was prepared to do at that stage because, yeah, I didn't want to admit to it. I was embarrassed. At the time, I really felt alone. So, I, yeah, I hope that others don't feel alone, you know, if they're listening to this. Having a baby is meant to be the most joyful time of your life. But for many mums and dads, it can be the hardest and at times the darkest of places. Welcome to season two of Blue Mum Days, the podcast for anyone struggling with parenting. All the stories shared here are from the heart. These are real conversations and may be triggering, so please listen with discretion. Today's episode covers feelings of suicide. We will also signpost you to help in the show notes. Thank you. This episode was recorded during the autumn of 2022. Today's guest is Laura Bisbee. Laura is a chartered town planner and works for St Modwin Homes. Her daughter Charlotte was born in 2018 and Laura was diagnosed with perinatal distress during pregnancy, which continued following the birth of her daughter. She's here with us today to share her story. Welcome to Blue Mum Days, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Vicky. Thanks for having me. So are you happy to start off in the beginning if we talk about how pregnancy was for you? Was it a planned pregnancy? Yeah, um, it was It was planned. And when I found out I was pregnant, uh, I was very excited, was looking forward to the 12-week scan and making sure that everything was okay. And things at the start seemed good. And then probably about week 15, I started to notice that I had got increased anxiety, something I hadn't or at a level I'd never really experienced before. And I was suffering with rage. And, and that is something that I'd never experienced before and was re really embarrassed about it. And unfortunately for my husband, he obviously sort of took the brunt of that rage and that sort of increased anxiety and emotions associated with it. 
And following a particularly difficult incident, we both agreed that it would be best to go to the doctors and talk to them about what was going on, which we did. And they were great. I was referred into the perinatal mental health team and I was um, assigned a mental health nurse who came to see me regularly and also was under the care of a psychologist as well. And they were very good in putting sort of strategies in place to help me deal with that anxiety that I was feeling. I think probably things felt like they were on the up. I was not struggling as much as perhaps I was before we'd spoken to the doctor and was getting a lot from talking to, you know, to the mental health nurse on a weekly basis and to the psychologist. Unfortunately, when I was 28 weeks pregnant, I broke my arm in two places, which just compounded an already tricky situation, really. My arm couldn't be operated on. So they um, put me back together as best they could in, in A&E. And I was told to sit still basically for six weeks. So it felt a very lonely six weeks. And obviously the feelings that had developed through pregnancy just became exacerbated. So it was a tricky time and I, I didn't enjoy it. And I felt really guilty for not enjoying what should be you know, a really exciting, joyful time of your life. That sort of feeling of, of guilt about not enjoying part of the pregnancy or sort of the aftermath, you know, once you've given birth, that's something that seems to be very common in women. And there is this sort of perpetuation of this myth that it's all roses, it's all lavender scented fluffy towels and sunshine and, you know, wonderful bonding moments. But actually for a lot of people, it can be at times really grim. Yes. I think um, normalising that, that it isn't all roses and lavender scented oils is really important because I certainly went into it. Um, whilst I was aware of postnatal depression, I had absolutely no idea that those mental health issues could present during pregnancy. And I, I think normalising that, that this happens and it's okay to feel like this. Um, it's okay that you're not enjoying it is so important. Yeah, absolutely. So I had my son in 2012 and I know it was broached by the NCT class that I went to, but it was very much some women get PND here's a leaflet. Oh, I don't think I even got a leaflet, but it very much seemed an other thing that if you're really unlucky, you'll get this rather than it being an in inclusive thing that actually many of us, it's so common. Mm -hmm. I mean, at least one in five women and at least one in 10 men. Yes. Postnatal depression or other perinatal mental health issues. But one thing I'd love to learn more about, because I've heard it come up time and again with my listeners, but it's not something that I personally experience. but this feeling of rage. And I can imagine that it's a very difficult thing to experience. And also, you know, sense of if you're not normally an angry person, that must be quite a frightening experience. Yeah, it was strange. It kind of felt like an out of body experience the first few times it happened it would take me by surprise, you know, it'd be at the drop of a hat, something would happen. And that something could be really trivial, but it would be enough to trigger 
this rage. And as I said earlier, it's not something that I'd ever experienced. So yes, it, it was quite frightening, but it was really embarrassing. I certainly didn't want to tell anyone else about it. Obviously, my husband witnessed it, but telling you know, a friend or family or a healthcare professional was absolutely not something that I was prepared to do at that stage because, yeah, I didn't want to admit to it. I was embarrassed. When you spoke to your GP, because it's wonderful that you got support and it sounds like you got support quite quickly. Yes. Were they explaining or normalising that change in your emotional behaviour? Um. I wouldn't say that the GP was. They were very good. And as you've sort of pointed out, I was looked after very quickly and the right frameworks were put in place to look after me. But actually, it was when I had those conversations with the mental health nurse, with the psychologist, that I really became aware that, you know, this was normal. You could experience this this rage during pregnancy and that was reassuring to know that this wasn't just me who was feeling like this. I think you talking about this so honestly and openly and, and bravely, I think will be so helpful to so many listeners out there, you know, people who have gone through that experience. I hope so, because that was something that at the time I really felt alone. So I, yeah, I hope that others don't feel alone, you know, if they're listening to this. And that it's absolutely not your fault. It's mm. something chemical or something that's happening to you. And it's not your personal responsibility. And it's yes. not you, it's the illness. And I think that's yeah. really important to get across. So, wow, my God, you really went through it. And are you happy to talk about that experience of when you broke your arm? Because that must have been a very, very difficult thing for you. You know, you were already finding your pregnancy difficult, but to then have that and that enforced rest, that must have felt very challenging. Yeah, it, it was very challenging. I really felt very alone. I was in a lot of pain, obviously, pain relief was fairly limited uh, and what had been given to me, I I didn't really want to take as well. I I was nervous about what that might do, you know, to my baby. Um, So I sort of grinned and bared it for six weeks. Um, It was very boring time. I, you know, I, the only place I went was for my checkups at hospital. And when my arm came out of the cast completely, which was um, after nine weeks, they kept it in. Um, I then was going for weekly physio appointments and I wasn't really doing much else. Um, and in, in that period, our NCT classes had started. And I remember the first one, I well was struggling to dress myself because I was in a cast from fingertip to shoulder and I remember my mum having to come over and make me look half presentable to go to this NCT class um, because I wanted to make a good impression to these people Um, but everything just seemed tough and I was really thinking crikey have I ever done the right thing here but you know I can't even deal with broken arm how on earth am I going to deal with with a baby when the baby arrives Um, so I think the broken arm certainly just exacerbated that already difficult situation. 
And not just a small break. It sounds like it was a really full on one, you know, if you yes. had your whole arm in the cast. Do you think because of that sort of enforced time of, of rest, do you think it didn't help in terms of overthinking about stuff? Absolutely. I was sat on my own every day, really, you know, okay, my parents might pop in for, you know, a cup of tea, but I I was largely on my own whilst my husband was at work. I wasn't working, you know, I'd be checking my emails, but I wasn't really working. And I suddenly felt that I wasn't needed at work. And that time sort of on my own, I, yeah, I just sat and thought and thought and thought. And I think the only the only saving grace during that time was that the mental health nurse, by this point, you know, I was in, in the system and the mental health nurse was coming on a weekly basis, which was great because it was the, almost the one thing that I looked forward to um, during those weeks. Did you feel it gave you an opportunity to feel sort of seen and heard? Yes. And I think by somebody who understood that that was really important. I don't think at that point I'd really told anybody how I was feeling, apart from obviously my husband was aware. So it almost felt like uh, a relief every week. You know, I'd got half an hour or an hour or whatever it was to share what was what was in my mind. And let that mask slip a little. Yes, absolutely. Because how many of us, whether it's during pregnancy or whether it's after, when you're a new mum or a new parent, you have that mask of everything's great, everything's fine. Well, actually, for a lot of us, and you know, the more we we actually let our masks down and reveal what's really going on, I think the better. Obviously, your husband knew that something wasn't quite right. Yeah. Do you feel he had a an understanding of what was going on? Was he supportive? He was absolutely supportive. I don't think he could understand or really relate to it at the time. And it took us as a couple a really long time to work out, you know, what the right thing to do was. What was the right thing for him to say at, you know, a moment of rage? What was the right thing to say if I was in a moment of severe sadness or the right thing to do. I did not want to be cuddled or, you know, hugged in any way. I think my barriers were up all the time. And it was those kind of things that we, you know, over a very long period of time, this certainly wasn't during pregnancy that we worked this out. Um, Yeah, yeah. so Andy was very supportive, but at the time I don't think he really understood or could relate to the feelings I was experiencing. And it took us a really long time, you know, as a couple to work out together what the right thing to do, the right thing to say at those particular, you know, moments of sadness, moments of rage. You know, we had to work that out together and that took a long time. That wasn't resolved during pregnancy. That really continued, uh, you know, following the birth of Charlotte. And for anybody that's listening now that's experiencing those feelings but finds it very difficult to communicate to their partner, is there anything you could sort of say that you found helpful or advice? I think for me, when I finally 
sort of admitted to him how I was feeling that those moments of rage were, well, he would have known they were not normal because I hadn't done that before. But when I really explained how I was feeling, again, it felt like relief. You know, it was one more person on my side to sort of support me through it. Do you think you were in a sort of extreme fight or flight scenario? Do you think that's why you felt so on edge? I think there was an element of that. And I think I was, um, I think I was really scared about what, you know, what the future held. Would I be a good mum when I went back to work? Would I be a good employee? How would I combine the two roles? Um, Those things were definitely sort of weighing on my mind during pregnancy. And was work quite important to you? Because you were saying about feeling not needed when you broke your arm. That must have felt quite difficult for you. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was something that, you know, sort of continued in the first year of Charlotte's life that you go from, you know, 100 miles an hour in your profession, knowing what you're doing day in, day out. And then for me, that sort of ended unexpectedly. You know, I didn't have those handovers to my replacement. I didn't get to say goodbye to the team. I didn't have that sort of farewell, enjoy your maternity leave lunch. And that really grated on me. I, I found that, again, I felt guilty for feeling like, gosh, I didn't have a lunch, which sounds ridiculous. But, um, you know, why me? Why am I feeling like like this? Why did I break my arm? And I think work, work was me and suddenly it wasn't. And that, again, took a really long time for me to accept that, okay, for a period of time, I wasn't going to be, you know, Laura the professional. I'd got this this new role. Um, But it also took time at the other end, sort of combining those two roles, you know, learning to be Laura the professional and Laura the mum and how those, you know, how those two roles interacted. It's very interesting what you were saying just then about at work where you knew what you were doing. And I think that's something (laughs) that I can certainly personally relate to where you're going from something that you, that is relatively under control to a completely different role that you have very little control on and it's all new and and it's not like where you can look up one textbook and have the answer. There's a million different pieces of advice and God knows the worst thing you can do is Google, which I did frantically (laughs) as a a new mum. Can you relate to that feeling as well? Absolutely. I probably had a really unreal expectation that Charlotte would slot in she'd quickly establish a routine and would nap when she needed to nap and would drink her milk when she needed to drink her milk. And this didn't happen. And I remember screaming at my husband one night, you know, this is, this is unsustainable. Um, But I genuinely think I had a very unrealistic expectation of how easy it was going to be for a baby to slot into our relationship. It's amazing. I mean, I still even look back now and can't believe how sometimes I couldn't even leave the house and I would be sat on the sofa for five hours breastfeeding. And you're like, 
how <laughs> but it's it yeah babies are babies and they don't necessarily sort of fall into routines or predictability yes and I'm a, a routine driven person uh, so that I think made it even harder that suddenly you know what I wanted the routine to look like I couldn't control you know Charlotte might go down for a nap when I expected her to and then 15 minutes later she was awake and I was thinking no you can't possibly be awake I haven't done my to-do list I've got washing up to do I've got the washing machine to put on and I think that all sort of fed into that sort of mental load you know I, I still wanted to be me almost and you know do all the things I would normally do but hadn't realized that it would be so difficult to you know to accommodate the two at the time. I think so many people can relate to that you know and it sounds like you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself and again that expectation on yourself for being the perfect everything. Would you say that's fair? Yes um, definitely a perfectionist and I think that was absolutely you know something that didn't help how I was feeling you know if, if some friends uh, mum friends were coming over you know with their babies during maternity leave I would make sure that house was spotless I didn't need to they were experiencing exactly the same with their children as I was at the time and they would have been understanding but again I think there was that mask that impression that I wanted to give off that I have got this. I'm looking after a baby. My house is spotless. I have absolutely got this. And I think that was something that when I did, and it took me a really long time, but when I did finally say to people, you know, this is what I've been suffering with, they were gobsmacked. They had no idea. Because you'd been really good at keeping up appearances. Yeah. Um, my God, that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. And maybe we should just all agree to have this amnesty that if you if you are listening to this now with young baby or a toddler and you sort of have that, I'm sure your friends feel the same. So just have an amnesty where you leave the housework for a moment. Again, that pressure that sort of as soon as baby sleeps, you're meant to be either resting, sleep when the baby sleeps, or you're frantically trying to tidy things up or make the tea or grab a moment in the shower or do the washing there's so many things to do and I used to wish that Stanley had a little countdown timer so I could see you know do I have a 40 minute window is it a 10 minute window? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because because you'd be like you know how much time do I have and I, I certainly myself I would have this list of oh no, I'm, I'm going to put the washing on. No, I'm not. I'm going to do this. And and so I would spend 10 minutes deciding what to do because I'd be like flipping between one thing and another and, and desperately yeah. trying to do everything rather than I'm just going to try and do one thing or I'm just going to rest, which yes. probably would have been the best thing to do in, yeah. in the time. But um, are you happy to talk about the birth? How was the birth for you? Is that something that went to plan or? Um, I didn't have a plan, which is unusual for me, given I like to be in control, but I didn't have a plan. And, and that was some sound advice given to me by a friend. You, you can't plan for their arrival. You'll only be disappointed when 
it doesn't go to plan. The only thing I knew was that I didn't want pethidin. I had heard some horror stories about that. So I made that very clear to the midwives. I was really lucky. I had a really quick labour. I didn't actually feel very well, but had no pain or anything. And we went down to the hospital just to get checked out. And I was sat on a chair for a while and they said, you know, we'll, we'll get to you when we get to you kind of thing. Uh, and then I started pacing the corridor and they said, oh, we'll, we'll take you straight through. So they must have spotted something in me. And when I went through, I was five centimetres dilated, which oh I was, wasn't expecting, um, as I said, because I hadn't sort of experienced any or felt any contractions. Obviously, things were happening. And Charlotte arrived four hours later. She was delivered by Von Toos just because she was in a bit of distress. But everything was appeared appeared fine. I felt very lucky in many respects, especially when, you know, obviously you speak to friends about their own labour and birth stories. So yeah, I felt very, very lucky. What I didn't feel was when they gave Charlotte to me, I, I certainly didn't have that rush of love. I wouldn't say I felt anything, probably relief. Um, that I'd done it, but I didn't, I certainly didn't feel anything for Charlotte. And I sort of expected that, you know, I was aware of the statistics around, you know, mothers who just sort of don't experience that rush of love, but I thought it will come in time. It won't be long. A couple of days, you know, once we're settled back at home, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure I'll experience that. Unfortunately, it took me probably, well, over a year to, to really feel that love. And again, that is not something that's your fault in any way. And it is it is a common thing. And whilst I didn't have that experience, well, I, I certainly didn't have the rush of love. And so many people I've spoken to throughout this podcast and just with friends, yeah. it actually isn't as common as we're led to believe. But whenever we see births happening in like dramas, there's always that moment of that, you know, euphoria. And I think if we are led to believe that that is something that should happen, then we feel terrible if it doesn't happen. But actually, a lot of people just say felt nothing Mm. or just felt numb. And Mm. again, that's okay. That's okay. And I'm so grateful to you for being honest about that. But that must have been incredibly hard for you because you had this this expectation of what motherhood would be like. And the reality, from what you've been saying, felt very different to to what you were hoping it was going to be. Yes, I I don't really know what I was expecting. Um, I certainly was expecting, as I said earlier, that the baby would slot in to our life and that that didn't happen. And obviously, you know, as you said, they don't come with a manual. You have absolutely no control over that routine. And that routine obviously changes as that child grows and those those phases change, you know, just as you get to grips with one routine in one phase, the next phase comes along and everything changes again. And, and I, I felt that very difficult to deal with, you know, just as I felt like I was finding my feet with one thing, 
everything changed for me again. I remained under the care of the uh, mental health nurse for quite some time after the birth. And again, she, you know, she would come and visit me sort of regularly. I was desperate to, I suppose, prove to myself and prove to my husband, because at this point still, he was really the only person that knew. I was desperate to prove that I was okay. I was better. And I agreed with the mental health nurse, probably when Charlotte was about four or five months old, that I would be discharged from the service. I had also been working with a CBT therapist that, again, the perinatal mental health team arranged just to deal with some um, or strategies to deal with uh, the sort of anxiety and OCD that had presented during pregnancy and had continued following the birth. So I stayed with that CBT therapist. I felt that that was helpful and, you know, was really working for me. And then about six months uh, when you start weaning, the wheels started to come off and it suddenly became more than I'd ever experienced. Even up until that point, it felt like another level. And the OCD was particularly bad. I was obviously weaning, I think looking back was probably a trigger for this. I was absolutely terrified um, of Charlotte choking when we were weaning. Baby led weaning for me was just, I couldn't possibly have done that, especially if I was on my own. I remember having a conversation with my husband saying, well, if I'm with her, I'll just give her her milk and then I'll wait for you. And, you know, we spoke about how we, we couldn't, we couldn't do that till she was 18. Um, you know, she, she needed to, to learn to eat and, and um, obviously needed that food to grow. So that, that was tricky. I had particular OCD around contamination. I was putting alcoholic hand gel on my six months old's hands, but I was so terrified of her getting ill that I felt that that was a good thing to do. So this continued um, and I remember going on holiday and again, I, you know, I was worried about the contamination point. So I took pouches of food and all her milk for a week's holiday on the aeroplane. The suitcases were absolutely full. But in my mind, you know, this was the only way I could control the situation. And this is, I think, you know, what it kept coming back to, you know, how could how could I be in control? And by this stage, I'd also started to experience real sad moments. And this was something that I hadn't experienced during the pregnancy and, and in that sort of immediate um, aftermath following the birth. But these waves of sadness, you know, would wash over me. Um, and would make me feel like I, I just couldn't continue. I started to get sort of intrusive thoughts around suicide um, and you know, how, how I might do it. I remember driving down the road one day and 
just wanting to, you know, to veer the car. And, you know, I, I said to my, my dad, I just didn't want to live anymore. And now that I am a mum, I, I cannot imagine, you know, Charlotte saying that to me. That must have been you know, awful for, for any parent to hear. Was that the first time that you really cried for help within your, your family and friends? Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, as I said, up until that point, I probably made references to it uh, to mum friends that you know I developed friendships with, um, but never really had spoken about you know the the real truth. Only really Andy knew what that was. Um, so I I called the doctor. I've you know I. I recognised that this couldn't continue. Uh, so I called the doctor, but unfortunately, because Charlotte was over six months, I was no longer able to be referred back into the perinatal mental health team. So I was going to have to go into the adult mental health services. And obviously then, and continues now, those waiting lists are, are, are huge I was really lucky. I have Bupa through my employer and I contacted them to see if mental health services were part of the cover and they were. And I started seeing a psychologist through Bupa and I saw that psychologist for, for probably about a year. Um, and some of the sessions I would go on my own and they would be very difficult and exploring difficult topics of conversation, you know, deep feelings. Other sessions I would take Charlotte um, because still at this point, I didn't really feel any love for her. I'd always had a sense of responsibility to care for her. And I started to, uh, you know, develop a relationship with Charlotte through play in the presence of, of the psychologist. And did you find that helpful in terms of helping develop those those feelings for her? Absolutely. I think it was just I needed somebody to point things out to me. I think you know I couldn't see the wood for the trees. I remember one session where Charlotte was playing with some toys provided by the psychologist, and she'd come back to me and. I think I'd given her a snack or something and she'd crawled away again and to look at another toy and she came back and the psychologist said to me, why do you think she's come back to you? And I was like, I, I don't know. I don't know what she wants. I've just given her her snack or whatever it was. And she said, but you're, you're her security blanket. That's not her toy. She's coming to you to check. Is is this okay, mummy, for, for me to play with this nice toy over here? It was like a revelation. Um, and we did a lot of work around the circle of security, which just really helped me to understand, you know, why a child behaved like a child and 
why it would keep coming back to its parent or carer as that sort of security blanket for them. And that was a huge turning point for me that, you know, I recognised what or started to recognise what she needed from me and importantly, why she needed it. And also how you were providing that for her already. Yeah, without realising. Yeah. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll put a link to information about the circle of security in the, sh- the show notes, if anybody's interested. Um, wow. So you had so much going on and, and with the obsessive compulsive disorder, that must have been very distressing. Was that something that you'd had previously or was this completely new to you? I would say, and if you ask my friends, they'd probably say I've always been sort of very neat and tidy and clean. So maybe that's not unusual for me, but it was the level at which I was cleaning. You know, we would go to a restaurant and I'd be anti-backing everything in sight, not just hands. Um, You know, if I didn't well, I was just about to say if I didn't take Charlotte's cutlery, but I always took her cutlery. Again, it was that control. Okay, how can I possibly control any potential for contamination? I'll take her cutlery. I'll take her food, everything I'd got. And even if it came out of my bag, it was still anti-backed. So I I think it was just on, on a level that I didn't even think was possible, to be honest. I think so many people can probably relate to that sort of up to a point, you know, they're, they're born and they're so pure and you want to sort of protect them as much as you can. And then when you go to a few baby groups and um, all the kids are literally just putting everything in their mouth because that's how they explore. That's how they learn. But yeah, when when suddenly all the, you go to a baby group and there's all these kids just like shoving everything into their mouths and you, you sort of soon go beyond that and become much more accepting about that. But it sounds like for you, it was a very extreme form of, of that. And it must have been very frightening for you. It was. And I think I, I felt like I was letting Charlotte down in some ways because sort of those, those baby groups that you mentioned I would choose ones where that was limited. I remember, you know, a group of my mum friends uh, joined, it was kind of an art group for children or for babies. And I remember looking, they sent me the link. I looked at the webpage and there were pictures of children sat in bowls of spaghetti and goodness knows what. And I thought, I I can't take her. I just can't do it. So we didn't go. And you know, have a letter down? No, it was it was the right thing for for me to do at the time. Um, but yeah, that that sort of guilt, sort of in you know in the present, was was a lot. You know, oh gosh, she's missing out on socialising. She's missing out on exploring, all because that particular environment looks you know too risky for me to, to take her to. Um, so so that, that was the overriding feeling, I think, at the time I was, I was letting her down. And again, there's so much pressure put on 
parents these days, especially with things like Instagram and the internet, where there's so many things like you need to socialize them, you need to take them to messy play, you need to be doing this, they need to be outside. And yes, all of those things, you know, are important to an extent, but there's a lot of pressure put on us to to do all these things. Like, you know, I've, I've found weaning extremely triggering myself. And I remember reading, I think it was Annabelle Carmel or, or something, where it's like, by the third week give them papaya and pineapple and something else and it's like and I remember like dutifully going because it said in the book that's how suggestible I was you know trying to track down a papaya so Stan ate papaya on that day I don't think he's ever had papaya since (laughs) and I really don't think that if I hadn't given him a papaya on that day (laughs) that he would be scarred for life but it's it's hard when you're sort of in that level of thinking and all those intrusive thoughts are coming through what do you think you were most frightened of? You, you said you were scared of her becoming sick. Is that right? Yeah, definitely fearful of her becoming unwell. Um, a fear had developed. Probably actually was there before pregnancy and not really, not really noticed. So I'm not sure this was actually sort of... Um, something that was triggered by the pregnancy but I think it was exacerbated by the pregnancy I remember thinking when we decided to start a family gosh I hope I don't have morning sickness because I don't I'm not very good with vomit I'm thinking oh am I doing the right thing I was really lucky because I I didn't have any sickness at all so I was I was very lucky in that regard but that was definitely something you know that contamination point was around sickness um there was also I suppose the more extreme, you know, what if she's seriously unwell? What if she chokes, you know, whilst I'm weaning her? That was very present. And those kind of intrusive thoughts, you know, were there a lot. And I remember it it must have been the summer when we were allowed to meet again after COVID. And I remember going to a friend's house and she gave the girls some grapes. So Charlotte would have been two and a half at this stage. And up until that point, I had meticulously cut up the grapes because I was, you know, still very concerned around that that choking. And I remember my friend putting this bowl of grapes in front of her and I was thinking, oh, my goodness. And I sat and watched and she ate the grapes and she was fine. She was obviously much bigger by, you know, by this point. And I needed that. I needed somebody else you know, in the room to just give her the grapes. She was probably eating grapes at nursery for all I know, but I needed somebody else to, you know, to be in the room for me to be like, oh, okay, you know, it's fine. She's much bigger now. She can eat a whole grape and I know she'll chew it properly. Um, But it made me laugh. And at the time I didn't say anything to my friend, but I've since said to her, you know, know that time after COVID when we came over and you gave them grapes (laughs) and uh, we, you know, we laugh about it now. And and that's, you know, it's lovely that I'm able to do that. And, you know, particularly with with that friend who's sort of been on the journey with me. The grapes thing, God, I, I really remember that my goodness, Stanley's 10 now. And I still sometimes say, make sure you bite it in <laughs> So you're not alone. And I think so many people will sort of resonate with that. How was Andy, your husband, when this was going on? Because was he understanding what you were going through? Was he sort of fighting the 
OCD instincts? Um, I think he was frustrated. You know, when we would go out for a meal and there I was before anyone even touched anything, you know, cleaning things, wiping things down. I think he did find it frustrating. It, you know, it was a real test of our relationship. But at the same time, I, I think he understood it hadn't, you know, that level of decontamination hadn't been present, you know, beforehand. So I think he recognised that this wouldn't be at this level forever. You know, some things remain now and they probably will always you know, sort of be, be with me. And obviously everyone's always using their hand gel these days. But um, yeah, I think some things will always be with me. But at the time, I think for Andy, he recognised that things would sort of step back a bit. It was just everything was heightened. And with the fear of, of vomit, I mean, babies are sick and babies are sick a lot. So how did you cope with that when Charlotte was ill? Um, when she was, um, well, actually, it was the day Andy went back to work, which was typical. So he'd had three weeks off following Charlotte's arrival. And unbeknown to me, she'd got reflux. And I was at home on my first day. I decided that we absolutely couldn't possibly leave the house on this first day. It was safer for us to be inside. And she projectile vomited her milk everywhere. And again, I remember calling Andy and screaming down the phone at him and saying, I can't do this. You know, we're going to have to change roles. You're going to have to take paternity leave and I'm going back to work. I can't deal with this. And again, you know, at the time felt so guilty about that. You know, the majority of mothers take their maternity leave and fathers, you know, continue with their professions. I felt guilty for wanting that all because she'd vomited over everything after she'd had her milk and again you know that continued and we sorted her reflux out and she was tongue-tied and all this business but that fear of vomit remains um again probably something that you know will stay with me we have a a routine if you like that Andy deals with Charlotte when she's poorly or when she has been poorly and I <clears throat> can deal with the cleanup operation because I feel that I'm more able to again control that situation because it's very hard to control a four-year-old uh, who's got a sickness bug for instance so yeah the, there's definitely a, a routine and it hasn't been an agreed routine it's just <laughs> developed just naturally happened and yeah. don't get me wrong stomach bugs and illnesses and things like that are they're just grim aren't they you know I don't know anybody that's excited when their kid starts vomiting it's you know it's it's awful and I know when Stan's sick still to this day or, or just ill I find it triggering because again and it goes back to that control thing of you know I'm out of my comfort zone what if it's yes. not something that I can help with or yeah I, I get discombobulated or dysregulated I think the term is so in terms of the 
OCD, what, what helped? Did you have specialist help when that came along as a factor? So I, I continued the CBT work, which definitely helped. There were other things going on in, you know, with the OCD. The contamination point um, was, you know, the I suppose the one that was ever present. But there were other things. There was lots of checking going on, checking she was breathing at night when she was asleep, um, those kind of things. And I, you know, learnt some really helpful strategies to deal with that um, on the checking there was one I remember where number three is my sort of magic number. So everything was was done in threes. And I remember the CBT therapist saying to me, okay, tomorrow, can you just try two and let me know how it feels? And I remember it feeling like a really horrible day that I couldn't do what I normally did. And again, that kind of feeling slightly out of control. Somebody else was managing the situation. But we got through 24 hours of just checking twice on whatever I might be checking at that time, whether it was on Charlotte, whether it was on the door being locked or whatever. And those kind of things, those strategies actually stay with me to this day. I can always tell if I'm in a period of heightened stress because that checking routine it is perhaps a bit more present than it would ordinarily be. And, and those strategies that I've learned, um, you know, through through my experience uh, are still there and I can still sort of draw upon them in those circumstances. So it's something that you're able to manage, even if it's not gone away completely. Absolutely. Yeah. And for anybody listening that is sort of in the throes of OCD, what would you recommend I think without a doubt, having some therapy around obviously cognitive behaviour that I don't think anything else would have helped. I didn't feel like a talking therapy in terms of those sort of anxieties and depressive states would work with that sort of OCD that I was experiencing. And perhaps it goes back to, you know, Laura the Professional And actually, I need a solution to deal with this. And that was one area where I felt like there were some solutions, at least that could be tried. They might not work at first, but they could be tried. Whereas with the anxiety and and the depression, you know, that really didn't feel like there was a solution, not, not, um, not a strategy to deal with it. It felt like that was something that I was going to, you know, to have to talk through, work through. Whereas with the CBT, I was doing it regularly. I was seeing them once a week and, you know, able to reflect week on week. Well, that, you know, that didn't work. I, I try, I've tried that last week and that was useless. So let's, let's forget that and let's try something else this time. And it felt like I was working towards a goal. Whereas the goal in relation to the anxiety and the depression seemed so far in the future. It was, you know, it was out of touch. Um, whereas I think with the OCD, I felt that I could, I could make small steps in a shorter period of time to, to get that sort of under control. And I think it's very important to make this point to anybody who's going through it for the first time that recovery is, isn't linear. It's not like a, a single curve where it's going up 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 you know it's it is very much 
one step forward, two steps back sometimes, and that that's okay. You know, that is all part of the recovery process. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in terms of looking back from when I first started feeling sort of anxious during pregnancy, so week 15, if I look at my recovery, you know, there were peaks and troughs. One moment I thought, I've got it. And then other moments, you know, I was right at the bottom of that trough and things couldn't have looked worse, to be honest. So when did you start feeling that things were getting better for you? When I went back to work, work quite literally saved me. I I probably didn't realise how much I missed having that role. So to be able to go back to work and to talk, obviously not just to adults, because I was talking to, you know, adult mum friends throughout my maternity leave, but just to be able to talk, you know, on a professional level, to be the Laura who I used to be, that I remembered, it was a revelation really. And I think the combination of work, the continued sessions with the psychologist after I went back to work were really what helped, you know, to almost, I I don't want to say kickstart my recovery, but it really felt like it. It felt like a huge turning point. Um, And yes, you know, it was tricky. I, as I said earlier, learning to combine, you know, Laura the professional with Laura the mum. But there were times when I'd still avoid situations. Bedtimes were a really difficult time for me. I, I never enjoyed doing bedtimes. And, you know, Andy would get home from work and I'd pass Charlotte over and be like, I can't deal, I can't deal with her anymore. And I remember one evening. Uh, sat in the office about six months uh, since I started and I just had this urge I I can't describe it in any other way I had an urge to get home and to do bedtime this was not normal this felt exciting so off I went I went home and I put Charlotte to bed and I was knelt on the floor next to her as she was falling asleep and I was singing nursery rhymes and it just hit me I realized that you know I I realised I'd found what I was looking for. So when I said I didn't feel that rush of love when she was born, and then obviously a very long intervening period, um, I did eventually find it. And how is your relationship now? My relationship with Charlotte is it is great, and I think we've been on a you know a journey together. Has it affected our relationship? Absolutely not. Have I let her down? No. Obviously, you know, as I said at the time, it's very hard not to think that you are letting them down. Um, but uh, no, it's 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 perfect. And now I, you know, I love picking her up from school and bringing her home and spending, you know, spending the afternoon with her a couple of days a week. Um, so it's yeah, it's great. That's wonderful, and it's so. So heartening for anybody to hear that's going through it at the moment. And I, th- I think it is so important to let mums or dads who are, are going through bonding difficulties with their children to know that it isn't going to be like this forever. Yeah. And if you need further 
evidence of that. If you're a new listener, if you listen to episode one of season one with Liz Wise, not only do we speak to Liz, who's now a full-time P&D counsellor, but she had very severe bonding issues with her daughter, Emma. And Emma actually comes on at the end to talk about her mum and to talk about the close relationship they have. She is well aware of the fact that Liz did have bonding difficulties with her when she was a baby, but it hasn't affected their relationship. And she actually feels that Liz was a better mum because of her postnatal depression, because she made it very open to talk about feelings as she was growing up. And, you know, the fact that you can now say it hasn't, (laughs) because I think the thing that I always remember was health visitors talking about, don't do this because it'll scar your baby for life. Don't cry in front of them because you'll ruin them. And there's so much guilt put on you as a parent, but actually you were giving Charlotte everything she needed. And now, you know, it's happened naturally and it's wonderful that you're enjoying that relationship. Before we go, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the work. Did you tell work that you'd had such a difficult time when you first went back? I had a really supportive boss uh, who had known about the issues during pregnancy. So I felt very comfortable telling him that uh, this was what was continuing. And they were very good in, you know, in terms of allowing me to take time off for my sessions with psychologists and CBT therapists, etc. I didn't tell colleagues. Um, just didn't feel comfortable. I remember I lost a lot of weight towards the sort of back end of my maternity leave. Um, uh, again, those kind of depressive states. I really lost my appetite and had insomnia. And I remember going back to work and people commenting, you know, oh, you look amazing. You've lost so much weight. And I would make a little joke around how, you know, this is what happens when you're crawling around after a toddler. Little did they know that actually I just wasn't eating. So I didn't tell them. And then last year on World Mental Health Day, they had asked if anyone wanted to share mental health stories. And I thought, I think I'm comfortable to do this now. So I did. I wrote a a little blog, which they shared on our intranet. And the response was was absolutely amazing. I mean, there there were a lot of people who obviously commented and said I had absolutely no idea. And then there were others who, you know, were sharing their stories with me. And I think what I took from that was, you know, a bit of a cliche, but it's good to talk. So it was it was very powerful. And I think that's, you know, a tremendously brave thing to do, especially when you've worked so hard to, as you say, have your professional persona to then show vulnerability, but no regrets in opening up in that way. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it was, again, it felt a little bit like relief. You know, it was one more step on that sort of journey of telling people 
about my own experience. And I think, again, it's so comforting for women out there who do feel so passionately about their work and how that's connected to their identity. I think to hear somebody else voice their feelings that they might be going through of like, actually, I need to get back to work because that's going to make me feel okay again, that it's okay to feel like that. Yes. And I think hopefully there are moves being made in society to allow dads who want to be more present in their child's life. And there are many dads out there who who want more than the two weeks paternity leave. Yes. To look at sort of parenting as a, a joint thing and allow people to get the balance that they need individually in their lives. Yes. I mean, my goodness, it's been such a, an incredible honour to sort of hear your story. And thank you so much for, for sharing it with me. Do you have anything to say to somebody who's feeling rock bottom right now, who doesn't think they're going to get their life back together? What would you say to them? I think there are probably two things. The first would be, if you haven't, reach out to a friend, a family member, a colleague, um, a healthcare professional, just one person because it will sort of be that first step on your journey to better mental health. And I think the other thing is hold on to that hope. You know, recovery is possible. There are lots and lots of people out there who have recovered and, you know, can share their stories and and you're not alone. Yeah, you are absolutely not alone and you will not always feel like this. And both Laura and I are here as evidence of that. So thank you so much for sharing your story with me today and, and being so honest and open. I know a lot of my listeners will be feeling very reassured from hearing how you managed to pull through such difficult emotions and experiences. Thank you. Lovely to chat to you. If you've enjoyed this episode of Blue Mum Days, please like and subscribe. It really does make the difference in helping other people find it. And that means helping more parents. Thank you.